If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The Age of Discovery, when European Christian powers sailed west and encountered lands and people previously unknown to them, is probably a familiar story to many listeners. However, Professor Mark David Bayer contends that this traditional narrative overlooks the role of the Ottomans. He's written a book on the subject, and History Extra content director David Musgrove caught up with him to find out more. Today, I am joined by Professor Mark David Baer, author of The Ottomans, uh, Khan's Caesar's Caliphs. Uh, Mark is Professor of International History at uh, the London School of Economics and Political Science. Um, Mark, thank you very much for joining us. How are you today? Good. Thank you for having me on the programme. How are you doing? Oh, uh, very well, thank you. Very well. And I very much enjoyed reading your book. It's a, it's a fascinating tome and it covers a lot of ground uh, geographically and chronologically. Uh, I'm going to try and laser in in this conversation because obviously we can't hope to cover everything that you talk about in your book in uh, in one short podcast episode. What I'd like to talk about is, uh, is a very interesting chapter, a couple of chapters in the book uh, about the Ottomans and the Age of Discovery, um, if, if that's okay. And hopefully we might delve a little bit into the Renaissance too if we've got time. So we need to unpack that a bit before we start. Would you be able to give us a, 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 a basic definition of what the age of discovery is, is generally deemed to be before we kick off? Well, generally, people talk about how these Western European nations, Portugal, Spain, France, the Netherlands, and then England, launched these voyages that ended up, allowed them to make conquests in the New World, also eventually in South Asia and Southeastern Asia. And it gave rise to a a triumphalist narrative about the rise of the West and the superiority of the West and the the fact that the only reason the West was able to engage in this age of discovery is because Westerners are curious, they're, they're curious about the world, they're intellectually open, and so on. Now, in my book, I take that age of discovery and I say that, well, this is only half the story. What's well, often forgotten that the Portuguese main rival in the Straits of Hormuz, in other words, in um, moving in the area moving leading to the Indian Ocean and Indian Indian Ocean, the main rivals of the Portuguese were the Ottomans. And the very reason that Columbus sailed west, he was lost, of course, he ended up in the Bahamas, completely lost. The reason that the Portuguese sailed around Africa and the reason that Columbus sailed west was to avoid the Ottoman Empire and was to find a route to South Asia so that they could have direct access to the spice trade. But the fact is that the Ottoman Empire was that powerful empire in the way that was controlling the land routes and the sea routes. And so so this is often forgotten about the story. It's not just that. It's not that the Portuguese were more curious than anyone else. It's that they were trying to get rid of the 
Ottoman Muslim middleman in trade over the day. Okay, so let's let's just step back one moment there. So, so the age of discovery would sort of traditionally be like the fifteenth, sixteenth century, wouldn't it? That would be the, the the rough chronological period. You've mentioned the Ottoman Empire there. Um, listeners may not be familiar with it. Can you give us a brief uh, summation of of where the Ottoman Empire is at the start of this period? How it's how what its what its spread is and how it's come to come to be where it is and, and how it is. Well, again, we ha- we want to think of the Portuguese and the Ottomans together. One of the Portuguese goals was to conquer Jerusalem. Jerusalem had been controlled by a Sunni Muslim dynasty known as the Mamluks. But in 1516 and 1517, the Ottomans, who are based in their capital city of Constantinople or Istanbul, they managed to destroy the Mamluk Empire and they conquer Mecca and Medina, the holy cities for Muslims. They conquer Jerusalem, the third holy city for Muslims. They conquer Cairo. They take what is today the modern Middle East. And this enables the Ottomans then to be in the Red Sea. They are able to launch their navy into the Red Sea. And that's where the Portuguese are trying to enter to get hold of the the spice trade. So the Ottomans are an empire that's expanded into southeastern Europe. Its its base, its core, its um, capital city is at Istanbul. But now, as of 1516, 1517, they also control most of the Middle East, and that's why they come into competition with the Portuguese, and they are competing. They're going to compete for the Indian Ocean trade. Okay, so so it's a, a serious player by the by the time we're we're talking. It's a it's a serious political player. Is it correct to call it an Islamic empire? That's a difficult question. It's a complicated question because the ruler is a Muslim and the paramount virtue, the the most important values of the ruling elite and the dynasty are Islam. However, the Ottomans have built an empire which is based on maintaining difference, which allows for diversity, which in fact enshrines diversity in the social hierarchies and legal hierarchies. What does that mean? It means that while the Portuguese and the Spanish massacred or converted and eventually expelled all their Jewish subjects, those Jewish people, most of them, migrated to the Ottoman Empire where they are able to practice Judaism. So this is an empire. I'm not trying to, you know, um, sugarcoat it, but just in reality, at that time period, in the 16th century, the Ottomans are a empire that, even at that period in the 16th century, the majority of the subjects are actually Christians in Southeastern Europe, in Anatolia, what is today Turkey. So it's uh, an empire whose ruling elite is also made up of, much of the elite is made up of converted Christians. So different elements have gone into making the empire. And, and in your first answer, just going to take it back to that, you mentioned the interesting point that uh, that the reason why the Portuguese went west to, to to eventually to find America was that their route to the east was blocked by the Ottomans. So, um, so is it is it far too simplistic to say that, that the only reason that that Columbus and Co went to America was because of the Ottoman Empire being in the way of of their access to the spice trade to the east? They were also driven by religious impulses. So Columbus thought that there was a Christian kingdom in the East or a kingdom that wanted to be Christian. And so he believed that he could he could unite with that kingdom and from the East attack the Ottomans from the East, not from the West. So there also was a crusading mentality that the Portuguese and the Spanish, and that was also important in this age of discovery. So you can say that they're searching for Christians, 
and for cinnamon, for spices. So economic and also religious motivations. And when we, when we think about the Ottoman Empire, perhaps naively and incorrectly, or maybe this is just me, I tend to think of the Ottomans as a, as a land-based empire. Um, do you, I, from, from reading your book, I know I'm incorrect, but just tell me, so how far were the Ottomans a maritime power as well as a land power? They become more and more so over the course of the 16th century. So with the conquest of Constantinople in 1453, that's the point at which the Ottomans begin to really build a major navy and become a ma major naval power in the Eastern Mediterranean and also by the end of the 15th century, moving into the Black Sea through the Straits and conquering areas there. So, but, and then they continue to build up their navy. When they defeat the Mamluks in 1516, 1517, they take over the Mamluk navy and incorporate it into their own. And as I mentioned, they're able to then launch expeditions through the Red Sea. By the end of the 16th centuries, the Ottomans are such a naval power that they're sending expeditions to Southeast Asia, to Indonesia, to help Muslim rulers there. So in the 16th century, they become a major naval power. Now, people often ask, well, okay, if the Ottomans were so clever and wealthy and, and powerful and had such a great navy, well, why is it that the Spanish and the Portuguese and, and later the others colonized the New World, the Americas? And the answer is quite simple. The Ottomans had everything they needed in the Eastern Hemisphere. If you think about China and what is today India, that's where the wealth of the world and the Muslim empires, this is where the wealth of the world was. This is where the materials were that people wanted to buy, the silk and the, and the spices. So there was no reason for the Ottomans to go west. They, had, they found everything they needed in the east. So you've uh, you've preempted my obvious question, which was going to be why you know if they were such a, a serious maritime power, why didn't they go to America? Um, was was there any um, from your research? Was there any sense that they were interested in going to America? Was there any point when they when they when they were a serious competitor to the Portuguese and Spanish in that respect? The Ottomans are also often in the scholarship being, are are often depicted as not being curious. Um, there is this prejudice against Muslims, as if they allowed as if they weren't as curious as Christian peoples. It makes no sense. The Ottomans were always innovative uh, with new technologies in their culture. But regarding this aspect, the Ottomans were very well aware of the discoveries. The Ottomans obtained a copy of Christopher Columbus's map. And Christopher Columbus's map is lost, but we have that Ottoman copy. We also know that the Ottomans obtained Magellan's or copies of Magellan, Ferdinand Magellan's maps. So they're very curious, very aware. They also wrote treatises based on all the new knowledge. They also, they interviewed crew members of the Spanish and Portuguese journeys to ask them and find out what they were finding out. They used this new knowledge to not only create maps, but also to, to keep abreast of their enemies. The Spanish, the Habsburgs were their main enemy. So they, they were very curious, but th there was no need for them to try to launch an expedition further west, though. But they were definitely gathering intelligence um, of all the new knowledge that was being created. So, so in, in your book, you challenge this, this stereotype, as you describe it, that the Ottomans kind of mentally blocked exploration and discovery, that they had an inward-looking view uh, and that was based on a sense that the Ottomans were convinced of their own religious and political superiority. So, where where does that um, where does that view come from? If it's if it's so far out of uh, of, of reality, 
Well, modern scholars, modern scholars in in the America, in, in North America, and in Europe, and in Turkey, have really looked um, looked down upon the Ottomans and seen seen them as as really quite um, stuck in, in 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 the past and had this view of themselves as superior and the like. Well, however they viewed themselves, the evidence shows that they were gathering knowledge east and west. So they also were began to write travel uh, travelogues really travelers accounts of china and travelers accounts of india so so they were they were curious about the entire world if we if we think about the ottomans the ottomans were a eurasian empire so they were incorporating the latest knowledge the best knowledge from east and west so when they conquered territories in the east be it cairo be it um, in what is today iran they would then bring those scholars to their, their capital city. So, for example, there was a very well-known astronomer who was, well, who was working for another regime that they knocked, that they that they destroyed in east of them. They brought him and all his observations, all of his his books, all of his logs to their capital city. He built an, an observatory and they made new measurements of the stars. And that knowledge, which went from Central Asia to Iran, to the Ottoman capital, then made its way west and played a part in the scientific revolution in the 17th century. So, so these stereotypes about Muslims not being curious or the stereotype about the Ottomans only allowing Christians and Jews to, to carry out trade are completely false. There were Ottoman Muslim merchants in Venice. And they had their own inn and their own mosque in Venice, because they they live there as traders. And, and another one of the stereotypes you challenged, which you've alluded to earlier, is this this idea that the Ottomans were not skilled mariners. Is is there anything at all in in terms of um, either um, sailing skill or sailing technology that differentiates the Ottomans from the other seafaring powers during this period? Well, again, I'm, I'm not going to. I mean, I'm not going to say the Ottomans built the biggest or the, the the best or the fastest ships. I mean, other 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 empires would do that. But what I like to compare is how these societies use their human resources. So again, the Portuguese and the Spanish expelled their Jewish and Muslim populations. The Ottomans incorporated Christian converts. They incorporated Jews. They incorporated peoples, and they used their skills. So there were many of these these um, these captains were well, were renegades, were Christians who converted to Islam and then served the Ottomans. So the Ottomans were open to to new technology, new knowledge, but also bringing in individuals who weren't necessarily brought up in their society but had something to give. So um, would it be using a modern term, which is no doubt anachronistic in this context, but um, would it be appropriate to say that the Ottoman Empire was more diverse than the, the Portuguese and Spanish empires? Absolutely. I mean, again, the, the Spanish expelled the Jews in 1492. And at the beginning of the 17th century, 1609, perhaps 1607, around then, they expelled the remaining Muslims after trying to convert them for a century. So, so these were intolerant societies. Now, Again, I'm not going to sugarcoat Ottoman society. Ottoman society was diverse, but there were social hierarchies. So legally speaking, Muslims had better rights, more privileges than Christians and Jews. Men had more rights and privileges than women. And free people in the Ottoman Empire, of course, uh, were in a far superior legal position to slaves. So, so I'm not saying the Ottomans are 
pre-modern Ottoman society is not a society where there was coexistence and equality. And I'm not saying that at all. I'm, I'm talking about tolerance in a pre-modern understanding, which is that they tolerated, they put up with, they allowed to exist these groups that were expelled from Western Europe. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Henry VIII enjoyed dressing like an Ottoman. Um, he would wear a turban and these fantastic robes and strut around. We know these things, uh, but that's all forgotten today. Okay, so um, most of our listeners are probably familiar with the, with the, with the Western Christian um, exploration narrative that you outlined at the start of, of the conversation and, and, and the journeys to the Americas and, and, and the, what happened after that. You've mentioned that the Ottomans had an interest uh, in an easterly direction. So can you give us a, a bit more colour and flavour about their explorations and their discoveries and the area where they were particularly interested in their age of discovery? Well, they, they, for them, what was new was East Africa. What was new was the west coast of what is today India, the, of South Asia, the Indian subcontinent. What was new was Southeast Asia and China. So they're launching expeditions in these areas. They're linking up with Muslim kingdoms in those areas. They are sending and establishing colonies of Ottoman Muslim merchants in India, for example. And some of these individuals then are writing back, are writing uh, essays about the culture and practices of the Indians or of the Chinese. So for them, this is this is what again, the age of discovery. It's it's a it's a loaded term. But if we just say what was happening in the 16th century, the Ottomans become a much grander naval maritime power, and they are able to play a very important role in politics, in trade, in military matters in South and even Southeast Asia. Okay, so your your point is that basically the Western narrative of the Age of Discovery overlooks the whole Ottoman contribution to it, and that we ought to see if we if we're going to talk about an Age of Discovery, which perhaps is not an appropriate phrase or, 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 or term to use anyway. But if we're going to talk about that, then we really ought to include what went on in the East as well as what went on in the West. That's right, and we also have to remember the differences and how the different empires use their native peoples, so that the peoples in the society, which ones were tolerant, which ones weren't, and we also have to look at commonalities and um, whether they're technological or ideo ideological. And and just um, sort of branching out a little bit, I said I hoped we might be able to talk about this um, linked. It, it, quite closely to the age of discovery is is the Renaissance, this this rebirth of, of ideas, um, the, the revival of classical culture and learning in the in the fifteenth and sixteenth century in Western Europe, as it, as it's described. Um, wh where does the Ottoman Empire and the Ottoman experience fit into that? You know, we've talked about the the way that you break down the stereotype that the Ottomans were inward looking and not interested in exploration. Does the same go that they weren't inward looking and not interested in in new learning and developing new things? Uh, and, and, and therefore would properly fit into this Renaissance idea. Well, again, like the concept of the Age of Discovery, that Northwestern Europe and Western Europe had so much more to learn than the Ottomans because Muslims had already, had never lost ancient wisdom. So the ancient writings of the, the, of the Greeks and the Romans wasn't lost in the East. Muslim societies had translated 
interpreted, reinterpreted, added to that corpus of ancient knowledge. It was never lost. It was the Western European powers who had lost touch with ancient knowledge. And that's why the Renaissance, the rebirth of, of knowledge was a rediscovery for them. But we have to think about links. I like to think of Europe and Asia as connected. So if we think about how did Renaissance thought, how did ancient thought enter into Europe? And here, too, we have to go back in time to the 8th century and later, when we go to Islamic Spain. And all those ancient writings of the, the Romans and, and the Greeks were translated from Arabic and from Hebrew into Latin, right? So this is, this is how this material moves into Europe. Initially, it's through Christian, I'm sorry, it's through Jewish and Muslim translators working with Christian scholars in Sicily and in Muslim Sicily, and in Muslim Spain. And that's how the ancient knowledge is, enters into Europe. So, so this is one thing we have to think about. We also have to think about Ottoman rulers as being Renaissance princes. And the best example of this is Mehmed II, Mehmed the Conqueror, the one who conquers the Byzantine city of Constantinople in 1453. In every regard, he is a Renaissance prince, both in his, his artistic tastes and his literary tastes and his cultivation of himself as in being someone in the in the you know, being modeled on an ancient ruler, he he has his historians compare him to Alexander, so so he's very conscious of what other European Renaissance princes are doing. He has some of the same portrait artists paint him. He has the same medallion makers strike medallions for him. So the idea that Muslims would never have portraits or medallions made is, is quite silly. Here's a, here's a leader of the most powerful Muslim empire or Muslim-led empire, and he has his portrait made very proudly, and he has these medallions. So in these ways, and also if, if we think about the knowledge that he gathers around him, the philosophers he gathers around him, he's very much a Renaissance prince, as is his grandson, Suleiman, Suleiman the Magnificent, Suleiman the First, is also very much of um, very much a Renaissance prince. But those 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 two individuals are not. Um, uh, you, maybe you would disagree, but they're not habitually included in the pantheon of, of Renaissance rulers and princes, aren't they? And that, would that solely be because they're they're Muslims? I think so. I mean, if you go to Hampton Court Palace here in in outside London, and you look at the portraits portrait gallery, there's Henry VIII, who we all think of as a Renaissance figure, and then there's Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire, and then there's a ruler of France. Where is Suleiman? Where is Suleiman? We know that Henry VIII had a portrait of Suleiman and, and looked up to him as a much more powerful, much more wealthy leader. Henry VIII enjoyed dressing like an Ottoman. Um, he would wear a turban and these fantastic robes and strut around. We know these things, uh, but that's all forgotten today. So if you go, so in that, that hall, the portraits are, are labeled as Henry VIII's rivals or neighbors. But where, where are the Ottomans? They're very much part of Renaissance diplomacy, very much part of Renaissance trade, and very much part of Renaissance culture. If we think of Machiavelli, we think of what he wrote about the Ottomans. He praised them. Uh, he saw them as a, a model kingdom whose, whose uh, subjects would never rebel because there was no hereditary noble class. So it's throughout Renaissance literature that the Ottomans are, are, are being included. 
and I, and I, um, I, I recall now we had a feature in uh, BBC History Magazine a while back from Jerry Brosson where he um, he talked about um, Elizabeth the first correspondence with with the Ottoman ruler at the time and and, and the fact that these letters survive in a, a very interesting series of correspondence. Is is that a unique example? Or was there a lot of correspondence and conversation between Ottoman rulers and uh, Western Christian Renaissance rulers? There were, there were. And what's interesting about this correspondence with Elizabeth is she's not corresponding with the Sultan, but with the mother of the Sultan. And in fact, she's writing in Italian, and she's and the, the person on the other end in Istanbul who's writing in Italian is a Jewish woman. So here's England. Here's a kingdom that had expelled its Jews 300 years earlier. And yet here, its queen has to, has the only way she can communicate with that other empire is through letters in Italian with a Jewish woman who was the person who commu who communicated between the ladies of the harem and the outside world. So English people were both horrified and afraid of the Ottomans, and they had very negative things to say about Islam. At the same time, they very much admired the Ottomans for their wealth. And I mentioned a few minutes ago about Renaissance diplomacy. So the, the English sought alliances with Morocco so that together they could attack their enemy Spain. At the same time, the Ottomans allied with the French so that they could launch attacks on the Holy Roman Empire. And there are actual naval engagements that included French and Ottoman forces that attacked different city-states in, in Italy. Together they were going to attack the Pope and the Papal States as well. So the Ottomans were very much integrated into Renaissance diplomacy and military alliances okay so uh, so winding up um, you've you've um, you've argued for uh, essentially a recalibration of the age of discovery to include the Ottoman Empire within the, the purview of that period and also that the Ottomans should be seen within the context of the Renaissance as as, as part of that um, cultural event as well so broadly speaking the the the, the thrust of your book if I read it correctly is that is just bigger than that, is that we should see the Ottomans very much as a European power and that we shouldn't exclude them from the narrative of European history as perhaps they have been in the past. That's right. And again, the Ottomans are a Eurasian power. They're as much Asian as they are European. They're also an African empire as they conquer territories in Africa. They are an empire, but in this book, of course, I want to, in a way, rewrite European history to move the borders of Europe east to include Europe's Muslim rulers. And, and you know, the reason to do this is it also helps us to rethink all of these different categories. We can still use the category of the Renaissance, but we just need to include all the figures who took part in it. And we have to look at its, its predecessors and its long history. So too with the Age of Discovery. We have to rethink the way that we define the Age of Discovery to better understand 16th century global maritime conflicts. Right. Well, that's been absolutely fascinating. Gives a real, uh, real insight into into the way you're trying to reshape the narrative here. I just wonder: is there any um, obvious questions that we should have tackled here, or any points that that relate to this particular conversation that um, that perhaps we uh, we might have delved into that I haven't asked you? I was also just thinking about about uh, gender and and women, and I was thinking about how another way we include the Ottomans in European history is when we think about these marriage alliances. So all the way back to the 14th century. The Ottomans are marrying into Serbian royalty and they're marrying Byzantine princesses. The Ottomans are engaging in 
taking sides in the Byzantine civil war before they destroy the Byzantine society. So the Ottoman engagement, the Ottoman partaking in European history, it's, it doesn't begin when the Russian Tsar says that the Ottomans are the sick man of Europe. The Ottomans are part of Europe from the 14th century all the way to their end in, 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 in the, the rubble of the First World War. And, and just on that, finishing very finally, um, listeners might be wondering how the Ottoman Empire did did disappear. It doesn't exist anymore. What what was the what was the the the, the final death knell of the, of the empire? Well, the death knell was choosing the wrong side in in the First World War. They sided with Germany, and their leaders they were ruled by a really a junta that came to power in a putsch, and they made terrible decisions, terrible terrible military decisions. They also engaged in they turned against many of the Ottoman values that had kept the empire and the dynasty around for so long when they committed genocide against the Armenian population. This was turning against the tolerance that had sustained the empire for nearly 600 years. Well, Professor Mark David Baer, thank you very much for your time there. As I said, your book, Ottomans, Khans, Caesars, Caliphs, is on sale now. It's, a, it's an excellent read full of, well, covers a lot more ground than what we've just talked about there. So um, if anyone's interested in, in the long durée of the Ottoman Empire, then uh, it's the one to read. Um, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me on the programme. That was Mark David Bayer. His book, The Ottomans, Khans, Caesars and Caliphs is out now published by Basic Books. If you're interested in hearing more about history, why not check out our virtual lecture series? On the 2nd of December, Amy Jeffs will be delving into British mythology. And on the 16th of December, Andrew Roberts will be charting the life of George III. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash events. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow when Kate Lister will be exploring the history of sex work. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.